Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 9th, 2013, and if my mind is working properly, it's a Wednesday. And uh, we got a really great show today. I have a guy that I'm going to bring on in just a bit named Ian McCollum. He runs a website called ForgottenWeapons.com where he chronicles different uh, military surplus weapons throughout history, including a lot of kind of strange and weird variants thereof, to preserve that information so that people will know why we have what we have today as far as firearms, where they came from, how they evolved. He's also going to talk to us about the requirements to uh, obtain, basically, a machine gun, a fully automatic weapon. And, and a lot of the myths around that being complicated, because it's really not, and uh, how you can do that. And we're going to talk about surplus military arms in general, including some of the stuff that's still a really good deal out there. And we'll talk a little bit about pending gun control legislation and the advantages and disadvantages of t obtaining what's called a CNR license, all of that and more in just a bit. Before we get there, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Free State Project. They're the only sponsor I have that doesn't pay a bill. Um, I believe in what they're doing so much and the work that they're putting out so much that I gave them a spot is kind of one of my you know, uh, philanthropic things, giving something back. And they're a good friend to the show. They refer a lot of people to us. Uh, when people say, you know, where do I get started, uh, we get a lot of referrals from them. Last year I was the most requested speaker that they had at their Liberty Forum, and I'm returning again this year. I would love to see you at Liberty Forum in February in, uh, in New Hampshire. I'd love to see you there. Remember, we still have a contest running till the 14th where you can win free tickets. And the grand prize winner gets to sit at Dorothy and, 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 and my table uh, on the, the big uh, keynote uh, dinner on Saturday. And the second prize winner gets to have dinner with us on Friday. And the third prize winner just gets in. But trust me, if you come there, win, lose, or draw, um, you are going to be spending a lot of time with me. Because what we do is between sessions and in the evening and after dinner, we hang out in a really great pub that they have there at that uh, place. And we just sit around and talk and let everybody get to know each other. Uh, I'm going as much for the exposure this year as because I enjoyed the experience so much last year. It really was like a vacation for us. And I'd love to see you there. And I'd love you guys to help support the Free State Project however you can. It's not in the cards for everybody to move there. It's not in the cards for me. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we can't support them. And remember, a fight for liberty somewhere is a fight for liberty everywhere. Next up today, Harvest Eating, the illustrious, the talented, the notorious chef Keith Snow, who will teach you how to cook seasonally and locally and how to make cooking a life skill. Chef Keith will give you a lot of recipes, but he'll tell you the recipes really aren't the magic. It's the technique and knowing how to do things. And looking at one recipe, you can make your own substitutions and decide what you like. Uh, he has some really great instructional videos. He has a great blog. He has an awesome freaking podcast. You should subscribe to his podcast. If you like this podcast, you'll like that one. He's a member of our expert council, so if you have cooking questions, uh, call them in 866-65-THINK and, and let us know that you know they're for Keith Snow. Just email me as soon as you make your call and say, I just called from number XYZ and uh, it's for Kef, Chef Keith Snow and we'll get his response on for you. got a couple coming up from him on Friday on the listener call-in show that uh, we've been waiting for for a while. He had to get over a cold. Uh, but check him out today, HarvestEating.com. Great seasonings and spices too, man. Check them out. My favorite stuff to cook with comes from Chef Keith's website, HarvestEating.com. Next up, uh, remember, you can check out TSP Gear Shop. We have some really cool stuff. The Every Citizen of Sentinel patches are in. You might want to order some of those now. Uh, we also have a special running with Survival Gear Bags this month. For the end of, through the end of the month, if you go to Survival Gear Bags, not the gear shop, but if you go to Survival Gear Bags and spend 25 bucks on anything at Survival Gear Bags, you'll get a free Every Citizen is a Sentinel uh, PVC patch, Velcro-backed. And if you go to um, there and spend $150 or more, you'll get an Every Citizen is a Sentinel T-shirt and a patch. 
Uh, again, this is Survival Gear, uh, TSP Gear Shop at tspgear.com is where this gear comes from, but Survival Gear Bags, because they're run by the same company for me, um, they are giving away some of the free TSP gear. There's a post on that. I'll put a link in the show notes. Last but not least, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members and help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like paramedics. I offer you a service discount. If you email me before you join, uh, I will send you a special discount code that will thank you for your service, and that discount will apply to your recurring membership. It's a permanent discount as a thank you for your service. Just tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did and put service discount in the subject line when you email me at Jack at the Survival Podcast.com. With that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up, but I have some follow-up. Um, I don't get a lot of things wrong on the air because I try really hard not to. Uh, sometimes people disagree with my opinion, but when it comes to reporting facts, I try to be very accurate in reporting facts. Um, I recently brought to you, and I brought this up twice, an article from the Economic Collapse blog that stated that there are 11 states now where there are more takers than makers. In other words, more people that are government, uh, receiving government assistance is how it was worded on the Economic Collapse blog, than there are people that are actually working in the private sector. The source article that they referenced, if you go into it, and this was brought to my attention by a listener, um, actually says included in the number of takers are all government employees and government retirees. I, I've you know stated that it, that number sounded like it included people that had retired from government service but not actively working. That was incorrect. So the number of 1.39 takers in California versus one maker includes government employees. Do you know what it changes about the conclusion, though? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing at all. Because as I said when I covered that, um, you know, if you work for government, I'm not putting you down, but you don't produce anything. You take. That's what you do. That's what government. And there's certain facets in government service that I think we really need, like law enforcement. Uh, I think in larger cities, fire departments and things like that, we definitely need that to be a government-run institution. Uh, you can do volunteer fire service and make it work really well in small towns. But in a city like L.A. or something like that, it just it just really doesn't work. So there's certain functions that government, I think, performs better than the private sector. But there's a lot of functions government performs that we don't really need. And even if you say we need them, the reality is if you're being paid as a government worker, your salary doesn't come from the delivery of services and the exchange of value, but from a taxed citizen. And when you start having more taxed citizens than you have productive people, you're upside down and you're headed for economic collapse. And the fact that that number includes government employees might make the timeline to that a little bit longer, but it changes nothing about the destination, uh, only the velocity of approach to the edge of the cliff. But I did want to correct that because I did report it inaccurately. And I want to say something before I bring our guest on about that. When I report information to you, I am reporting it based on the source that reported it. And if I find that source to generally be credible, and Economic Collapse blog generally is, and they probably didn't do anything misleading here, they just, the way they worded their article, you would not really infer that it included employees there, but they did source their article. That's my fault uh, for not following the source article down, which I usually do, but with the rush that's going on right now with moving and all, I'm not having time to maybe do that as well as I should on some things. But... When I report something and say Fox News reported this, you shouldn't take it as, well, Jack's saying it too, so it's, you know, that there's, I'm reporting it because Fox News is a, a valid news organization. So is CNN, so is MSNBC. They will often infer opinion into it, but having been through the vetting process by News Corp, which is behind the scenes at Fox News, uh, and being vetted to be on two different programs for them, and having being vetted by Glenn Beck's staff, much of the people he took from Fox News, I can tell you that the vetting that these news organizations do to ensure accuracy is pretty damn good. It's better than I would ever have time to do. So if I report to you something and say, this came out of... 
The credibility there should be rooted in the reporting agency. And if you find it to be inaccurate, let me know, and I'll make a correction. If you find it to be something you disagree with and want me to change it because you don't agree with it or you think but you can't point to fact to prove it, then I'm going to stand on what I've reported. But please remember, this show, one man's opinion, one man's view. This is not the news with Jack. This is an opinion-based show based on my interpretation of what I see is going on. And while I strive for accuracy, it says right in my disclaimer. And I'm going to read this to you real quick here. If you go to my website, and this has been up since day one of the show. This Actually, it's been up since maybe month one of the show. It took me about 30 days probably to get the show really together as a show. Uh, but from very, very early on... Um, If you go to my About page and you, you click on Links and Dis Disclaimers and Policies, uh, Disclaimers and Policies, Section 1, Legal Disclaimer, in order to protect myself from lawyers and the stupid, I need to state a few things about the show, what it is and what it is not. Section 1, uh, the Survival Podcast is marketed and, in fact, is one man's opinion. This show is not, nor should anything said in it, printed on its website, be construed as legal tax or financial advice. If you make investing or legal decisions after listening to this show, it is recommended you consult with a qualified professional first. If you don't, the decision is yours and yours alone. Two, every attempt is made to be accurate as to presenting factual information on both the broadcast and the website. That said, my, and this is something I need to update, isn't it? That said, my broadcasts are conducted while traveling in a moving vehicle at average highway speeds of over 65 miles an hour. Mistakes are and will continue to be made. Whenever they are deemed to be major mistakes, corrections and retractions are published, usually both in audio and in print. If you feel something that affects you or your company is in error or in any broadcast, simply bring them to my attention, and if verifiable, I will correct them. Three, the Survival Podcast is not and should not be viewed as a, quote, news source, end quote. While I often discuss current events and cite sources that are both conventional and unconventional media sources, once again, the views expressed are the opinions of one man. While I always strive for accuracy, I can and will be wrong at times, as any honest human will have to admit to. Four, if you choose to cite my show as a source for any piece of information, you do so with the knowledge of the items expressed on this page. My show, while informative and accurate, is not quote-unquote fact-checked by independent third parties other than my listeners who do a good job of helping me stay between the lines. My show should not be used to make your point or prove you are right only as a form of entertainment and opinion. I assume no responsibility for anyone who uses my information from the show to influence the opinions of others. So there you go. I am a normal guy. I provide you information. I try to be factual. But if you cite me, you're citing me as an opinionist, as a podcaster. You're not citing me as a journalist in the classic sense like would work for a newspaper. I don't have the staff to be able to function that way. I don't claim to be that. I claim to be entertainment and educational media to help you live a better life. That's what I do. And again, I strive so hard to be as factual as possible, but I'll make mistakes. And unlike a lot of people in that conventional journalistic world, I'll admit it, and not only will I admit it, I won't print it as a tiny little addendum to the bottom of the original piece. I will bring it to your attention and let you know I got it wrong so that you can get it right when you're passing the information on. With that, I do have everything wrapped up with the uh, cleanup from yesterday. And I want to bring our special guest on now, Ian McCollum. He runs a website called ForgottenWeapons.com. Guys, you need to get by and subscribe to his blog. It's just awesome. And with that, hey, Ian, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks. It's great to be here. Hey, um, you have a really cool website. I've actually been reading your site for a very long time. It's called ForgottenWeapons.com. It's pretty descriptive, but could you tell people just a little bit about your background and, and, and what, what Forgotten Weapons is all about as we get started here? Sure. Um, I, my background is a lot of uh, amateur shooting. Um, I did a little bit of competitive bullseye when I was in college and then really got into collecting and plinking on my own um, after school. And a couple years ago, I'd fallen in with a group of collectors, and uh, we had some older 
elderly friends who had collected some really impressive um, historical information, um, things like uh, some very rare old firearms, like the, the Pedersen device that converted a Springfield into a submachine gun, basically. And, uh, and this guy had all sorts of information and blueprints and, and technical data on the thing and died suddenly, and his daughter simply destroyed it all because she didn't know what it was. And uh, we had a couple of couple of those incidents happen real close to each other, and a friend and I decided we wanted to try and preserve information like this. So uh, well, we set up a website, ForgottenWeapons.com, and try to find as much information as we can on unusual and rare and experimental, mostly military firearms, and publish everything we can find so that it, it's out there for perpetuity. To make the forgotten become the, the not forgotten, I guess. Yes, exactly. We like the, the rare and the experimental stuff because they often cover mechanisms and ideas that, that may have had some, some value to them but didn't work out quite right, and so you don't tend to see these sorts of things on modern guns. So by looking at the, the old, weird, exotic stuff, you can get a, a much, much more inclusive idea of gun technology and development history. I mean, I guess you probably see a lot of this stuff as really being a bridge, right? Like you mentioned the Patterson device, and that's a great example of uh, something that was used as a, a stopgap that actually uh, became the concept that then was taken forward and, and developed further. And it doesn't look like that anymore, but that's the bridge between, uh, you know, a bolt action and, and full op. Oh. In some ways, um, actually not the Pedersen device in particular, but uh, but yeah, we look at a lot of like early conversions of existing bolt-action rifles into semi-autos, because for a, for a period of time, that's what everyone was trying to do was take an existing standard-issue rifle that some military you know had a million of, and figure out a, a cheap way to convert them into semi-autos by replacing as few parts as possible. And those are always interesting to look at. It didn't quite work, but it was it, it led to the eventual reality. Hey, we got to develop a standalone platform to do this. Exactly. Yeah, none of them worked all that well. Some better than others, but there were a way for people to start investigating what sorts of semi-auto mechanisms and actions would actually work right. Work right. Very cool. So one of the things I know about you, I think I know this. But you you own a machine gun. Um, and we hear all the time by politicians, machine guns are illegal, and they're, they're not illegal. There's a, a completely different process for buying what we would call a machine gun. Could you describe for folks, because I think there's a lot of people that believe that. It's just impossible to own a fully automatic gun in the United States, and that's not true. So what is the process for getting it done and getting it done legally? Sure. Um, and it's not just people who think that they're illegal. There are also a lot of people out there who have this misconception that there's a permit or a Class three license to own a machine gun, and that's also really not true. Uh, the way machine guns are regulated, in 1934, the National Firearms Act was passed, and that uh, created a national registry of firearms, machine guns, and several other types that I think we'll get into a little later. Um, and it wasn't considered constitutional to ban them at the time, which is really what the idea was. So instead, what they did was create a registry and put a $200 tax on the act of selling or transferring ownership of a machine gun. And at the time, $200 was many times what most basic machine guns cost. Uh, 1934, that was a ton of money. So in order to purchase a machine gun, what you have to do is submit paperwork to the ATF. Um, it's ATF Form 4 for a transfer. You need to, and basically what you're doing is applying for a tax stamp, just like a postage stamp, approving you to transfer possession of a machine gun. So the, the, the sheet that you have to fill out, it's, it's only one page front and back, and uh, you have to get a number of things on it. You have to obviously fill out your personal information and some information on the gun, the serial number and the caliber, uh, things like that. And then you need to give them $200, obviously, and a, a pair of uh, passport photographs of yourself. You have to submit a set of fingerprints, and you also have to inform the a chief law enforcement officer in your jurisdiction. Uh, you don't actually have to get permission from them, although a lot of uh, law enforcement chiefs use this as a way to prevent people from uh, obtaining machine guns in their jurisdictions. 
what you're actually technically doing is simply notifying or, or proving that the, the law enforcement chief knows that you're going to be possessing a machine gun. So the way they might try to block that is by not acknowledging receipt of and being informed. Exactly. They just refuse to sign off on the sheet saying that they've been told. Okay. Um, in some ways, it's a lot like sheriffs who refuse to issue concealed carry permits just because okay. they don't have to do it. Now, there are some ways that people have realized that you can get around some of these, uh, legally get around some of these requirements, um, and the most popular one is using a trust. Um, a lot of people in the, the gun industry know about this. ATF is totally well aware of it. Um, but to a lot of people who are looking at, you know, who don't have machine guns and haven't really gotten into that world, uh, they may not be familiar with it. Um, a trust that you'd set up for, like, inheritance with your estate is, in the eyes of the law, basically an entity equal to a person. And it turns out a trust can legally own a machine gun. So what you mm. can do is go to a lawyer, is the best way, and have a trust written up, basically for the sole purpose of possessing your machine gun. Well, a trust doesn't have fingers, and it doesn't have anything you can take a picture of, um, so you don't have to submit fingerprints or photos with it. And you also, uh, just due to a technicality in the law, you don't have to get a law enforcement signature to transfer a weapon to a trust. Um, actually, I think the reason is that a trust doesn't have a, a specific point of residence, so there is no jurisdiction involved. And uh, a lot of people are using trusts like that to, um, some people because they don't want to deal with the hassle of photographing and fingerprinting, and some people because uh, they have law enforcement officers who refuse to sign off on them. That's an interesting workaround. It almost seems like it was left for that purpose. Uh, probably some compromising was done to get that through. Um, I don't think it was really considered at the time. Uh, uh, also, corporations can own machine guns. And at the time, there were <laughs> a number of companies, you know, big mining companies and the like, or railroad companies, actually owned and registered machine guns basically for labor relations. Hmm. That's interesting. On strikes. Yeah. I know it's it's kind of a workaround in Costa Rica, not for machine guns, but for guns in general. You can you can own almost anything that you would own in the United States in Costa Rica. The restriction on is is on the number, and it's three guns to uh, an individual. But a corporation can own unlimited guns. So the person will own the corporation, hold their collection within the corporation. And then the way they get you there is you go buy a, a $50 single-shot shotgun and put it in your corporation. You have to pay a $100 tax on every single gun that you put into your collection. But it is a workaround. So that's that's not unprecedented even in other countries. Um, but so, like, what was your motivation? Because some people say, well, what do you want a machine gun for? What was your personal motivation? Oh, to be honest, mine was because it's cool. Uh, <laughs> I love your honesty there. Well, you know, it was funny um, talking to you earlier on about doing this interview. One of the concerns I had was that uh, a lot of the stuff we do on the website isn't directly or, or highly applicable to survivalism, although that's an area that I'm also very interested in. Um, and machine guns are, are along those lines. Um, you know, does the average, average or even most of the above-average survivalists need machine guns? No. But there are certainly some, some definite uses for them um, in the, the survivalist uh, arena, really. So the, the one I got was, it, it's a, a belt-fed uh, World War I-era British water-cooled heavy machine gun. It's a Vickers gun. And like I said, I got it because it's, it was just really cool. I really like the design. It's an, an excellent gun. And it was something that it, it kind of dropped into my lap at a really good price, so I jumped on it. That's definitely understandable. Now, you bring something up interesting. It's a World War One gun. Now, when they passed this Firearms Act, I believe it was 1939, if I'm wrong, you can correct me, um, there was an impingement then also upon the manufacture of new automatic weapons for civilians. How does that play out today? I mean, is everything that a civilian can buy today pre-1939, or are there other loopholes and ways that some of the automatic weapons get into that classification where they can be transferred under a, a, a tax stamp? So there are three dates that are important uh, when you're dealing with machine guns. The first is 1934, because that's when the registry was set up. Before that, you could own any machine gun you wanted, and the government didn't know and didn't care. After that, the law was that you had to register it. 
Now, you could, there, there's also a, a form for ATF. You can register a brand new machine gun, or you could at the time that you were building. And so if you were a, a gun factory, you could register new machine guns to sell to civilians. Uh, that changed in 1968. Um, or I'm sorry, in, in 68, uh, there was an amnesty for unregistered guns that could become legally registered without penalty. And a lot of war bringbacks were registered there. Um, it wasn't actually until 1989 that they they stopped allowing people to register new manufactured guns. So any machine gun that you can legally buy as an individual in the U.S. right now would have been manufactured prior to uh, 1986. And that's part of the expense because a lot of people would say, well, if I can buy one for a $200 stamp and it's $200 more over what the manufacturer can make it for, I'd, I'd have one tomorrow. Exactly. So that's part of what's driven up the cost of all of these automatic weapons is their limited availability. Right. And, and, and you know, I knew the answer to that question. I kind of asked it to set this up then. With all of this talk about an assault weapons ban, because that's the term they use for these weapons, that you and I know it's not the right term, you more than I, because you know the historical significance deeper than I do. Um, but basically, it's it's if the Feinstein bill went through, what they would like to do is classify AR-15s, AK-47s, Keltec sub-2000s, the exact same way that they do... Um, automatic firearms with, you know, you can't make them for civilians anymore. The ones that exist are grandfathered. They have to be registered. What effect do, would you see that having on the gun industry as a whole? Uh, it would have a massive effect. Um, I mean, it, the other thing to consider, I didn't, I didn't kind of neglected to mention this when I described the process for getting an NFA gun. Um, Feinstein's bill would require existing AR-15s and, and similar guns, all sorts of similar guns, to be registered with the NFA. They'd be adding a new category to it. Right now, just with machine guns, silencers, and the other items covered by the, the NFA, there's a wait time of five to eight months to have a piece of paperwork processed. So if you want to buy something, it's going to take you upwards of six months just for that paperwork to sit at ATF before it comes back approved. And if they dumped tens of millions of new so-called assault rifles into the NFA, I'd be really curious how they even try to deal with it because it would just – ATF would fall apart completely. There's no way they could handle it. it it's, it's only our government that could take six months to process a single sheet of paper. Yeah. It, it, it really is. I mean, that's that's kind of phenomenal. I knew there was a long wait. I didn't realize that it was that long of a wait. Yeah. Uh, My vicars actually went longer than most. I waited nine months on the paperwork. And, and it, you know, that to me, that, that spells disaster. I personally don't think that law will go through the way that it's written or even be the law that goes through. I think that is... Let's make it look really, really bad and scare the crap out of them so they'll compromise somewhere. But I do think it's a very accurate picture of what many people in our government would like. If, if I think if they could get it done, they would oh, it, do it in a New York minute. That's exactly what Feinstein wants. Uh, keep in mind, that bill also had provisions that you couldn't transfer guns. You'd have to register them, but you wouldn't be allowed to transfer them. And they'd, it, My reading of it was that they'd then be confiscated at death. Yeah, that's like it's even worse than, than than class three today. Where if I wanted to sell you my automatic AK, and it's registered and it's all above board, and I I, I legally possess it, and you fill out your paperwork, I can sell you that gun. Sure, like, in this day. new method, I wouldn't be able to sell you my AR. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, basically kill it off, put it in stagnation permanently. Now, like you said, fortunately, I think that bill is is so way out in left field that even even the Democrats don't have the stones to pass that. Um, I am concerned about what that gets watered down into. Correct. Correct. You, you see some kind of a, a national firearms registry for all guns or something like that. That's uh, you know like an a, an NFA light or something. Um, it is a potential thing. I do think they're going to go after the gun show loophole, which is a terrible terminology in the first place. Um, and I think that they're going to try to change background checks. I just put out a video yesterday about the fact that I think one of the things they keep trying to ram in there is if you're on the terror watch list or the no fly, uh, no fly list. 
And there's an NRA bill out that's supposed to be the common sense version. And it doesn't mention no fly, but it does mention, it doesn't say terror watch list, but when you read it, that's exactly what the terror watch list is. And my issue there is I can put, if I'm a member of the Attorney General's Office of the United States of America or the Attorney General myself, I can pretty much put anybody on that list I want to. Yeah, and even if they manage to get themselves off it, I can only imagine how difficult it is to try and fight having your name on something like that. Well, they, if you, the people that it's happened to that have come out publicly and said, I, I couldn't fly or whatever, have said, I have no idea why. They won't tell me why. And there is no recourse. There's no process. There's no... And, and, and I was, as I was saying yesterday, um, I just find it ironic that you, if, if you suspected somebody of terrorism uh, or being related to terrorism in any way, and they were going to get on an airplane, that you'd want to tell them that you know and disrupt what they're doing and not follow. I would think you'd want to like tell them, I'm sorry, Ian, but you know, uh, we, we, we now have to put you in a center seat and have an air marshal on both sides of them. Yeah, right. Well, I think you'd yeah. want to follow them around and, and not let them know. That's like spook 101, right? So I, I really fear that as then someday, you know, people like the Oak of the Southern Poverty Law Center get into control and uh, you end up with somebody just making the decree. Well, if you've ever been a member of the NRA or, uh, you know, something like we've seen come out with, with some leaked documents that say these are indications of terrorism, like you're a prepper. All of a sudden you're on the, you're on the list. And How about no you own an AR-15? Yeah, you own an AR-15. You were opposed to gun control in the first place, whatever, you know. But kind of segueing a little bit, because you cover a lot of things other than automatic weapons, right? You All the MILSERP stuff, all things like that. A lot of this stuff is some older stuff that's real hard to get modern ammo for. and Or you can get really cheap ammo if you go with the old ammo, and it's corrosive. And I've seen a lot of people say, never use corrosive ammo, but that's what they had for a long time. So... Yeah. Surely, with all this weaponry you have, you've come up with the proper method to use that stuff and clean your weapon and keep it safe. I have, and it's easier than people think. Um, there are a lot of threads out there on the Internet about how to do it, and you need Windex or Windex with ammonia or some special bore cleaner. The actual answer is you need water, ideally hot water, but you need water. What happens, um, old ammunition, and, and this isn't just low-quality ammunition. Until about World War II, this was pretty much all military ammunition. Um, it uses, uh, the, the compound used in the primers leaves behind salts uh, after it combusts. And so it's not really corrosive in and of itself, but those salts attract water, and that's what corrodes the inside of your firearm. So to get that out, literally all you need is hot water. You, know, you flush the bore and the, the barrel or the bolt face, and if it's a gas-operated gun and you have a gas tube, it's probably a good idea to clean that out uh, with water as well. Um, but, yeah, you clean it with water, and then you go through your normal cleaning process, and that's all it takes. And, frankly, a lot of people see corrosive and they figure it's low-quality ammo. There's a lot of really good, um, high-quality, reliable, corrosive surplus ammo on the market. I have several of the old Turkish Mausers, the ones that were sent to Germany and rebarreled in the 30s. Yeah. And I have some Turkish Milserp 8mm that's corrosive ammo, for them that, that was on the market, you probably remember a few years ago, and they came in these old bandoliers, and you could get them for like four bucks a bandolier, and I think it was like five things of two five-part stripper clips a piece, so it was really cheap. And I shoot that stuff all the time. I clean it exactly like you just said, and those guns are, you know, the barrels are only let's say eighty years old, but the guns themselves were made in the eighteen nineties, yep. and I shoot them all the time, and I've never had a problem. Um, a lot of people don't recommend – there are a couple different lots of Turkish, and some of it isn't all that great. It's pretty much all fine in a bolt action, but you do want to be careful using specifically Turk surplus uh, in a semi-auto. I'd agree with that, yeah. Some of this stuff's so bad that you, you inspect it before you use it because you can actually – some of it you can work the, the slug out of the, the casing. Yeah. And I was surprised by how much of it fires perfectly. I mean, as though it was made yesterday. You know, one of the, the big stashes of ammo I, I put up when it was readily available was uh, Romanian from the 1950s. And it's it's a steel case, it's lacquered, and it's corrosive. And most people would see those and, and run screaming. When actually, it's it's real high-quality ammunition. Um, you clean it, as I described, and, and you're just fine. Was that 76239 or 54R, or what was that particular oh, uh, stuff? 
eight millimeter. Oh, eight millimeter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff was, you know, that's the other thing with, with surplus is oftentimes if a batch of surplus ammo comes in real cheap, it's worth buying a bunch of it and then finding a gun to use it in. Even oh, that was the, the Monson Nagant. When I found out what I could get the 54R ammo for, I'm like, well, I'm off to buy one of these things since they're like 75 bucks. Yeah, exactly. You know, the thing with like a Monson Nagant, a lot of them, some of them shoot great, some of them not so great. And they're really not an ideal gun for really for anything in particular. You know, there's better hunting stuff out there. Just about anything is better for self-defense. But what you can do with a cheap Mosin Nagant and dirt cheap ammo is practice. Because the marksmanship skills you can get yourself on a Mosin Nagant, even if you know you're not shooting cloverleaf groups at 300 yards with that thing, but your trigger control and your sight picture will translate really well over to almost any other gun. No, and I look at it this way. I've always looked at it this way with some of this older stuff that's cheap. One, if I get one that shoots really crappy, I can go back to as long as they allow this, right? I can go back to the next gun show and I can get what I paid for it and buy another one and swap it out, so to speak. Yeah. And then even if I have a weapon, let's say that can group uh, two and a half, three inches at a hundred yards, if I can shoot that well, then when I pick up a rifle that groups better, I'll just shoot it better. Exactly. Because there's two components. There's me and then there's the rifle. And I control me. I don't really control the rifle. Right. And one of the cool things about shooting is that the skills are pretty much transferable. You know, if you if you spend a lot of time shooting gun A, most of the skill that you put together there is going to transfer directly over to gun B, whatever that is. And it's not an ideal hunting rifle, but I've seen some pretty, and I, you probably cringe at this, but there's so many of them and they're so cheap, it happens all the time, some pretty decent sporting conversions of the M44. Yeah, there are. Um, and an M44, is I, I would pick that over a, a 9130, a full-length most Magand, if I were going to go hunting with it. Um, and frankly, they don't really do anything wrong. Uh, it's just that um, well, they're not, they don't really have any advantage over anything else. Um, other than cost. Well, when you look at it that way, are there some surplus military guns that would be preferable to new civilian guns that you'd say, man, you might as well go get one of these for for utility use or for practice use or for hunting or for defense? Well, like we just talked about for practice, I think a lot of surplus is a great idea when you can get cheap ammo for it. Um, the other area where I think the, the military surplus stuff really shines is actually in small pistols. There are a lot of, right now, especially Polish, um, like 32 and 380 pistols out there on the market for 200 to 250 bucks. And again, a lot of people will see Polish or um, there's also, I know there are a couple companies that have a lot of Spanish star automatics right now. And they see Spanish or they see Polish and they figure, well, you know, quality's crap because those countries don't know anything about guns. Well, the, these were all generally military firearms to begin with. And most countries, whether they're dictatorships or democracies or anything else, put a lot of money and effort into giving their militaries the best equipment they can. And when one of those guns has been used for 20 or 30 or 50 years and then comes to the U.S.'s surplus, all that cost of development and manufacture has long since been spent. And you can get it for pennies on the dollar of what it would actually cost to make new. So, yeah, I can go buy a brand-new Glock for 500 bucks, but I can go get, uh, in fact, I recently did get uh, an Argentine copy of a 1911 for $250. Well, and the difference right now is you can go to a gun show or a store somewhere and find that, and finding a Glock 19 right now is like pulling eye teeth out of a cat. Yes, that's true, although I think that'll that'll change as uh, I do too. the political I do too. climate settles down. But, um you know, would I recommend that someone get a surplus pistol over, uh, you know, a brand new modern one? No, not necessarily. But a lot of us are on budgets, and we don't have five hundred, six hundred, a thousand dollars to spend on a fancy, shiny new handgun. And for those people, especially for something smaller, you know, one of these thirty-twos or three eighties that you want to have as a backup, or if that's what you want to have for a main carry, or extra pistols to stash in a vehicle or stash at a bug out location. Those those surplus pistols are a fantastic value, and a lot of them are very high quality. 
Yeah, and I always look at it this way. Um, the $250 gun you actually have is more valuable to you than the $500 gun you're going to buy someday if you happen to need it between then and now. Very true, yeah. And then I like those the, the Tokarov. Is that how you say that? The 7.62 by 25? Yeah, the and there's a lot of that around right now as far as the, the guns that fire that. Uh, there are a bunch of guns. Uh, the ammo is not nearly as common as it used to be. Uh, a couple of years ago, you could get that, that 7.62 by 25 ammo for pennies. It's gone up quite a bit, although the guns are still as good as they ever were. Um, the Yugoslav model of that, the M57, is a particularly high-quality one. Um, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people don't, again, don't expect it, but the Tokarev is basically John Browning's 1911 mechanism that's been improved a bit and dropped into a slightly different shaped pistol. And there's more. And there's not a lot of ammo available and cheaper than dirt for it right now, but there's more than there is 45 APC. And again, I agree with you. I, I, I think this will quell down the way the last shortage did. I don't think they're going to get this thing through. But the reason I bring some of this stuff up is I've been advising people the last couple of weeks, right now is a great time to be buying what other people are not. And this isn't a military surplus thing, but I got a beautiful Model 12 Winchester, featherweight, right? These guys, I, I remember these guns were going for 1200 bucks for $250 at the last gun show I went to. Nice. And, I mean, you, you couldn't touch that gun a few years ago for that. But right now, I think some of that stuff's getting pushed aside even by, like, low-end dealers because they just can't move it. And they're just like, I just want this. I want, this, I want some more cash to buy that guy's gun so I can sell it for twice what I'm going to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. If if you're looking to buy anything in the gun world right now, ARs and AKs are not not the ideal thing to to be getting. Um, I feel for the people who realize now that they really want one and and put off getting it. But uh, I don't think I would go out and try and buy one right now unless I really had a lot of money to to put into it because they're all yeah at the moment. I mean, one of the modern guns I really like is the Caltech Sub 2K. I think it's a great little gun. I think I paid 350 bucks for mine, brand new, a few years ago, and they're selling for $900, $1,000 on Gunbroker today. Yeah, that's insane. That, it's absolutely When you look at what that could, and then Caltech's always had that problem. Caltech just can't keep up with manufacturer of anything in the slowest time of the year. They come out with these great products, and you're like, yeah, I'd like a KSG shotgun, please, and like, it'll be six and a half months. Yeah, I really wish they'd delay all of their product announcements about two years so that they're <laughs> around in quantity. Let's stick on the uh, surplus because, like, you were talking about the quality. I think when you remember it was about eight years ago, six years ago, somewhere in there, we got the big influx of the Yugo SKSs, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people were blown away at the quality of those. Oh, those were gorgeous guns. They were basically brand new when they got here. And, yep. and I think a lot of people were expecting something similar to the knockoff Chinese guns that they had become accustomed to. And I know that the first time a buddy of mine, the first time I showed him one. And, you know, you could get them when they first came in. You could get, like, three for 150 bucks or something like that uh, through, like, SOG or whatever. And uh, they were all blown away at the quality of those things. Well, you know, Yugoslavia in particular has, again, what a lot of people wouldn't expect, um, an excellent history of firearms manufacturing. Uh, they just, they're a lot better than their cars, let's just say that. On, on the, if somebody did want something that they were going to use as a, a hunting arm uh, out of the surplus world, is there anything in particular you would recommend as a good value and a good quality arm? Um, I'm actually generally not that enthusiastic about surplus rifles for hunting. Um, I think they're all going to do a fine job of it. They're generally, the things to look for are sights. You know, find something that has a set of sights on it that work for you. A lot of military rifles have this old uh, post and notch sighting arrangement that it, really it's not the best thing out there. It's not the best way to do iron sights. Um, an aperture on something like uh, a USM1 is a much better, much more precise way to do iron sights. So a lot of military rifles are hindered by that. A lot of them also have poor trigger pulls. Some have great. It, with old surplus, you can't really generalize and say, well, this model is good and this model is bad as far as triggers because it just comes down to the individual gun. They've, they've, most of them have been through you know, government arsenal rebuilds at least once, if not more, in their lifetime, and they're just all individual at this point. If I were looking for a hunting rifle, you, know, you can get a brand-new Savage for 300 bucks and change, 
and that's going to give you, it's already set up for a scope. Uh, it's got a nice trigger in it. It's, you know, it's a nice new production gun, brand new barrel, so you don't have to worry about the barrel being worn. Honestly, that's the way I would go for a lot of, of hunting. Now, if I've only got a hundred bucks, will most of the gun do it? Absolutely. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to require a little more work on my part to make it happen. And, and of course, you know, if I have, you know, grandpa's 30 out six that he handed down to me from World War One, will that do it? Yeah, that'll definitely do it too. Uh, but if I were if I were looking specifically for a nice hunting rifle, I, surplus wouldn't be my first stop. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would also though say that, and I, I know you probably would agree with me here that I, I hate to see a historical weapon chopped up and bubble eyes and sporterized. I, oh, I don't, I, I don't like to see it. But it's been done to a lot of them. Yeah, and I have, for instance, and if it's already been done, it's already been done. I have a 1917 Enfield. That was put into a beautiful sporter, uh, handmade, hand checkered walnut stock. Had the ears shaved off it, drilled and tapped for a scope, and I would hunt with that gun on on any continent in the world that I could go big game hunting with. And that gun is fabulously accurate, wonderful trigger pull. That was like the the sniper rifle that that, that no one really appreciated because the O3 Springfield got so much. Uh, positive uh, recognition uh, because, the, from my understanding, the reason that the, the Enfield fell to the Springfield with Congress was because it cocked on closing, and that is one of the most fabulous guns I've ever owned in my life. I'll carry that till the day I die, and it'll go to my kid when I'm gone. I believe it. Now, you, know, you, you bring up a good point. Sporterized guns like that can be fantastic, you know, really, really nice hunting rifles. And back in the 50s and 60s, there were you know, piles of these things lying around that you, you couldn't sell fast enough simply as a result of uh, everyone building them for World War II and then surplusing them because they weren't needed anymore as people upgraded or just downsized their militaries. So back then, it was economical to take an existing military rifle and, and work it over and turn it into a nice sporting arm, and, and that was cost-effective. Today, it's not because... The surplus out there has gone up in relative value a lot because there's a lot less of it out there. Um, it, it, and it's cheaper. You're, you're really getting better value for your money buying something brand new than putting in the work to sporterize a military rifle that's in its original configuration, as well as destroying some of the historical value that you've already got. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, now, if you go to it wasn't that long ago, now, right? Because I remember in the 80s, I remember major sporting uh, magazine, major gun magazines, publishing articles on doing conversions of Swedish Mausers. And, and I, I uh, bet you there's a lot of people that did it back then that go, man, I wish I would have left that thing alone. Yeah, exactly. So it's a pretty, you know, I've seen some of those that are some pretty amazing sporting guns. So my only point there is if you find something that's that's already been done to, I wouldn't steer anybody away from it. No, that's very true. I wouldn't either. In fact, I have a couple of those. You know, someone already put the money in, and, and it's, uh, in fact, you can tell that it wasn't worth the money because they spent big bucks getting a real nice stock and scope fitted to it, and it still sells for, you know, 200 bucks. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the one I'm talking about, the, the Enfield I've got, uh, I paid $220 for it. And the scope that was on it was probably worth 150 bucks. I actually have a Swedish Mauser that someone bent the bolt handle, shortened the barrel, put a real nice you know, four-power fixed scope on it. And I got it for 125 bucks a couple of years ago. How's it shoot? Yeah, um, not bad, not perfect. Um, I'm not the world's greatest shot either. So. <laughs> so everybody's scrambling for the battle rifles right now because of this uh, hysteria, and uh, it, they're, they're they're paying exorbitant fees. But the two big ones, if you want to get their hands on right now, are the AR and the AK. Uh, Looking on, on those, uh, if you had to make a choice, which one would you buy and, and why? Well, in some ways, it's not a fair question for me because I already have a bunch of infrastructure for AKs, mags and ammo and spare parts. And um, They were cheaper you know, 10 years ago when I started getting into guns, so I kind of focused on AKs. Um, if I could do it over again, I'd probably go the same way just because I've grown to kind of like them. Um, there's nothing wrong with ARs. If, if you're getting into the question of which is better, I, I don't think really, I don't think there is a right answer. They're both fine. You know, pick whichever one feels the best and works the best for you, and run with it. Because the 
you put in equal training time with you know two people, one with each type, and you're going to come out with basically two equally effective shooters. Yeah, I, I I think it's one of the most pointless debates that we've ever had. And when people say, well, the AK will perform if you dip it in mud, I don't generally dip my gun in mud. Um, and I, I guess if you're a soldier fighting in the muddy jungles of the Congo, that might matter at some point, but that's not what we do. Well, so here's the thing. The AK was consciously and deliberately designed with larger clearances, more space between a lot of the working parts, and it, it sacrifices some precision accuracy in exchange for some reliability and durability. And the AR basically has the opposite philosophy. It's, it was consciously made to be more of a precision rifle, and it requires a little more maintenance. But the amount of difference between the two for 99.9% of us is negligible. Because, like you said, we're not going to go out, you know, fighting the Congolese rebels in the jungle. <laughs> we're actually going to clean the guns every once in a while and and most people frankly can't shoot well enough to to shoot as well as their AR has the potential to. Um I don't think I'm overgeneralizing and saying that. I certainly can't. Um you know, you take a person stand, you know, shoot standing at 100 yards and and what kind of group can you get? And I think for the vast majority of people, it's going to be a much larger group than they would get if they stuck that rifle in a solid rest at 100 yards. I, you know, and I consider myself to be a, a damn decent shot, and but yes, I'm going to shoot a hell of a lot better off a rest, which means that the the gun is more accurate than the shooter. Right. And you, we're not buying. You know, no one's the, the plan for buying an AR or an AK isn't because you expect to have to put it on a steady rest on a bench and shoot tight groups. It's because you may have to use it in some dynamic situation where you're standing up and moving around, and at that point, if you can only shoot as well as an AK, then you don't really gain any accuracy by getting an AR. Moving back to the historical stuff, what are your thoughts on the value of obtaining a CNR license? Um, I think it can be detrimental to your wallet. <laughs> and maybe you should explain what that is for those that may not know. Yeah, so the, the Fed set up a system where of licensing gun dealers, and the normal one is a, a standard um uh, uh, a type one FFL where you can buy and sell guns for profit as a business. And they also put in a category, a type three FFL, which is described as a curio and relic collector. And that allows you to uh, basically to act as a dealer for guns that are basically 50 years old or older. So, and that covers pretty much everything in world war two. Uh, it's getting close to covering a lot of Vietnam stuff, which is going to be a little interesting, but that's a, a different issue. Um, the upshot of this is that you can have these mailed, these guns mailed directly to you at your house because you're a dealer. So you don't have to go to a, a gun shop and have them transferred when you order from an online distributor or order from a classified ad from someone out of state. And if you're a person who's into historical stuff, you know, bolt actions, World War One, World War Two, and a lot of the early semi-autos, it's a great resource. It costs 30 bucks for a three-year license, which is nothing. The problem with it is it all of a sudden becomes a whole lot easier <laughs> to buy uh, neat rifles on a whim, and so yeah. Next thing you know, you're buying you know three Mosins, three SKSs in one shot, and having them shipped to your house by SOG. Well, yeah, you know they save a lot on shipping when you do that. <laughs> my my reasoning though is I, you and I both agree that this Feinstein thing is is not likely to happen, but I'm wondering if. A person, especially with the early semi-autos, like a lot of the SKSs qualify yep. as a CNR, that if some mutated form of this thing gets through, there might be some level of insulation around uh, weapons defined as CNR weapons, especially uh, you know, to the person that's licensed to collect them, because that's really what that license is for. It's possible. Um, I kind, you know, We haven't actually seen the text of Feinstein's bill yet, just the summary that she put up on her website. Um, I suspect that any bill she writes would not have any protection like that. A compromise no. that came as a result of it might, but there's really no way to know until they actually put pen to paper or, or rather show us what, what the, the proposed legislation actually says. Now, with finding these things other than you know ordering from the places that do the importing and stuff like that, what are some great ways that people can find some of, some of these historical weapons and get decent prices on them? 
Well, there, there are two different groups of guns that you're talking about there. One are the things that have been imported in bulk and are still, you know, that people, that dealers have stocking quantities of. So today that would cover, well, most of the guns would be a big one. Um, and for that sort of thing, there are a number of big surplus dealers out there. Um, just off the top of my head, uh, AIM Surplus is one, Sarco is one, um, I'm going to probably annoy some people by not mentioning some that just don't come to mind for me. Uh, <laughs> if, if you type in, you know, surplus rifle, you'll, you'll find Google will give you a, a good list of people. Um, now the other thing, the other group are the guns that came in at one time. You know, maybe someone imported 10,000 of them 20 years ago. They have long sold out from dealers, and the, the place, the only place you can find them is from other individual collectors. And that, frankly, that's where most of the interesting stuff is. There's not a ton of stuff being imported right now, and there's never a huge variety of it. You know, you'll have a dozen, maybe 20 different types of guns that are being stocked by distributors at any given time. And frankly, the, by far the best place I've found for individual purchases are online classified ads. Um, there's a great one at gunboards.com. Uh, AR15.com has a big classified section. Most of the discussion forums will have classified sections. And that's where you can find, you know, some guy in who knows where who decided he needs car insurance more than he needs some interesting surplus pistol he bought 30 years ago. Or his wife says some of this stuff has to go, and he's he's weeding out his collection or what have you. Yeah, I feel sorry for those guys, but not so sorry that I won't buy the stuff from them. <laughs> feel bad for you, man, but it doesn't mean I won't take advantage of a great deal while I can get it. Yep, yeah. yeah I got one real nice pistol from a guy who needed a car insurance payment. And uh sucks for you, man, but I'm not turning that down. <laughs> Are there any of these uh, guns that you see as kind of being on the cusp of, of soon not being so readily available? Like, all of these have gone through cycles. It's still pretty easy to get a Yugo SK, but not like it was when they were coming in. And, and you start to see a window of opportunity close. Is there anything, like, if you were advising people, like, if you want to start building a collection now and you've allocated some funds for it, some places that you would start as the things that are most likely to maybe dry up next? Well, yes and no. Um, everything. That is, that, <laughs> well, and the reason for that is it's not that but it's just that these things all get bought. They, they come into the country in a limited quantity, and it really is when they're all sold, they're all gone. Um, ATF is not real happy about signing off on import licenses. Uh, you know, if you want to, even if you just want to bring in old bolt action Mausers, you still have to get a license to import them as a dealer. And ATF can sign that or can delay it or can come up with some reason to not sign it. So there's a lot less being imported today than there used to be. And if it comes into the country and it looks like something that you want, you really, you should buy it as soon as you can. Because I guarantee you, sooner or later, it won't be there. Uh, yeah, there was just a bunch of M1 carbines and M1 Garands, I think from Greece, that the Obama administration made sure never saw the light of day in America again. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And that's and even, and even it's sad stuff, because that history's gone now. Yeah. And even the stuff that does come in, it all disappears. I guarantee it. Every single gun that gets imported will sell out sooner or later. Uh, and there's, the, I think there's the psychological block, uh, like with the, you know, the, the $79 SKSs years ago. People looked at those and went, well, they're 80 bucks. Yeah, it's kind of neat, but it can't be all that good. It's 80 bucks. Everyone's got one. And they put off buying them. And I'm a victim of this too. I did that. And it was stupid. And then the next time you look up, they're all sold out. And now getting a nice Chinese SKS is going to cost you three or 400 bucks. And you have to find it first. You can't just, you know, ring up. Bob's Gun Depot and order one. Um, <laughs> and and, and right now, they're really hard. <laughs> yeah, you know, the Yugo ones are another great example. They were out there cheap. And I remember a couple of years ago, I got over that mental hump and decided I needed to have some. And I was buying them. I wouldn't spend more than 200 bucks on one. and got a couple of them. And now they're 350 Yeah, and well, now they're $495. i am a gun broker. Buy it now, 495 395 415 Four fifty-five. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and these are these are and then some like here the one four fifty fives thirteen bids on it two hours left in the so it'll probably go for more. Yeah. Uh, and that is that is inflated right now. We we know that, but still uh, that does say you know what happens to them. What would you say if, if you had to pick your favorite bolt action surplus rifle? Ooh. For whatever reason you want to make it your favorite, whether it's the rarest or whether it's just the most well made or just feels the best in the hand or silkiest bolt, whatever you you define that as. Well, you know there are a bunch I like. The one I'm really into right now, and for no particularly good reason that I can explain, are the the 1891 model Mosinagans, uh, the very early ones. Uh, most of what's coming into the country or what is in the country now are, are what's called 91 slash 30s that were shortened and retrofitted in 1930 and afterwards. And the earlier, the, the plain 1891s, they're longer, and they, I just think they have a really nice, sleek design to them. They, have, they look good, and there's a ton of interesting history. They were made by um, three different arsenals in Russia. They were made by Chatellerault in France. They were made by, actually, Remington and New England Westinghouse here in the U.S. And there are all these varieties of them floating around out there, and the prices are being held down artificially by the glut of 9130s that are out there. And I think sooner or later, those 9130s, the nice shiny ones that have been Arsenal refinished and still packed in Cosmo, and those are all going to run out. And once they do, people are going to realize that the, the old 91s are, are kind of a different beast and have a lot more history to them. And, well, it's uh, interesting, too, because there's a unique opportunity there right now from what you just said with developing a collection of all the variants. Absolutely. If you like huh. small pistols, it's a there's a it's a great time right now to be buying up one of each of a bunch of the stuff that's coming in from Eastern Europe because um, they're cool. You know, they're all a little different, and again, they're all going to sell out. I guarantee it. I can't tell you when, but they all will because they always have. And uh, and then it's going to get a lot harder to find them. It does happen to everything. I mean, I remember when like the old uh, 303s, British 303 Enfields. Yep. Couldn't give them away. Yeah. And, and now the early models, you know, they're they're expensive. Yeah. Exactly. Especially like the jungle carbines and all. It's 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 a great hobby, and it's an excuse to buy guns. <laughs> well, it, it's easy to come up with one of those, but it is a great hobby. So tell folks a little bit one more time here about your blog because uh, I really recommend that they get over there and subscribe to you and and read the stuff you put out because you put out a post almost every day. I do six posts a day. Um, in fact, I actually have you to thank for the motivation to do that. Listening to your five minutes with Jack podcast um, really got me motivated to to make it a, a high volume blog like it is today. But, but yeah, for the last two years or so, I've done six posts a week and. Uh, Typically, there's a book review every week. There's going to be some commentary once a week. Um, and at least three days a week, there will be an article on some particular firearm that piqued my interest. And they're often unusual or prototype or experimental or, or just not well-known. Um, the address is, of course, ForgottenWeapons.com. Um, what else to say beyond that? Uh, it's cool. I had access initially to a couple of Really nice collections. A couple of guys who started collecting early and, and piled it deep. And the same thing, you know, they were, when they were buying German Mausers, they were buying the weird, unusual German Mausers. And, and now they're all gone and you can't even find the weird ones. And, you know, the normal ones are expensive. And, uh, as I started publishing stuff on that, I got interest from people who have other interesting and unusual stuff. So it's cool. I get a lot of correspondence these days from, people who have something that they think would fit well on the blog, and I, I try to publish as much of that as I can as well. Yeah, I mean, some of the photography you end up coming across is just really fascinating as well. You've had one recently uh, with a machine gun on a, a tandem bicycle. Actually, it was like a, stand, a tandem tricycle, oh, and that's, that's cool. a really interesting look at history. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and I guess the other thing I should say is that I, I try to cover a lot of uh, mechanical, technical detail on, on these guns. Since they are often unusual guns, I, take, I try to always take a look at how they work, why they're different from what's out there today, and where you know what led to their development and what came from them. So, uh, that actually, that picture that you mentioned, that's cool. It's, uh, I think, Belgian design, and it's, it's yeah, it's this 
a two-person bicycle that's actually a tricycle. It's got two wheels in the back, and they kind of built a heavy-duty tripod into it and have two air-cooled Maxim guns on the back. And uh, <laughs> they only made, if I remember correctly, they made 37 of those Maxim guns total ever because they just didn't catch on. They overheated too quickly. Yeah. So We're talking I mean, about some horsepower for a tricycle. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like the coolest tricycle ever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, man, hey, I appreciate you being with us today, Ian. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And, folks, with that, this has been uh, Jack Spierko today along with Ian McCollum, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess When we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way